Okay, good morning. What's that? My shirt. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Nick. Okay, uh, it's great to be here again this morning and to carry on with um, last week's message. And uh, yeah, we're just going to jump straight in there um, with this morning's title being uh, Powerful Faith. Uh, last week we looked at uh, specific scripture, and I uh, had the message title being Powerless Religion, and we basically looked at a scripture and a, a part of 2 Timothy 3, where the Apostle Paul writes to uh, his spiritual son, Timothy, who is a young pastor of the church in Ephesus, and and he gives Timothy some instruction here, but if we look at it initially, it looks like, hey, this is really dark and bleak. And so what I'm hoping to draw out of that today is, of course, not the bleakness, but the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And um, asking the question, what does it then look like for us as the people of God to demonstrate powerful faith? And so we're going to throw that on there on the screen. Um, that scripture that I used last week was uh, 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5. So if you can turn there in your Bibles, and it's on screen there, and I'm going to read for us. Paul writes here to, to Timothy, and he says, But understand this, that in the last days there will be times of difficulty. Now, isn't that just a great way to start a sermon, eh? You know, it's like very encouraging. In the last days... It's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. It doesn't really sound nice. And then he gives a reason for that. And he says, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Wow, a list of like 18, I think, characteristics of evil and sin that we will see in the last days. And then I focused last week on verse 5 that says, Having the appearance of godliness by denying its power. We're going to see people looking like they've got it all together, looking like that they are worshiping Jesus, but they deny the power of God. And then Paul instructs Timothy to say, avoid such people. And last week we said, you know what? It is possible then, according to Paul, to have the appearance of godliness but denied its power. And we ask the question, but how is that possible? How is it possible to come to church and you worship Jesus, hands are in the air, you're touched, you experience something unusual, and you have a posture of worship, but in the end, the rest of your life is in sin. And it does not have any change. It does not have any power. How is that possible? And I answered that question last week by looking at the nation of Israel and specifically 
Judah, which was the southern kingdom after the whole nation of Israel had split in two. But Judah were located in Jerusalem and they at the temple of the Lord. And I highlighted out of Jeremiah 7 for us three bait and switches that we need to look out for. In other words, three ways in which we can be deceived in thinking that, hey, our worship is on. Our relationship with God is intact even if we're living in sin. Those three baits and switches were location, location, location. The first one being that Israel trusted in a location. They trusted in the temple of the Lord. They thought that it was the sacred places and spaces that sanctified them. But I said, no, it's not that, but it is the sanctified people that become the spaces and places that are sanctified. Us that are being sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit. Second one I highlighted was they believed that they could just believe and not be changed. In other words, show deeds and show good fruits. And so God called them out on that. And thirdly, I highlighted that we can easily believe the bait and switch that, you know, come as you are and stay as you are. Come as you are, no perfect people allowed. And we said we can easily have that inclusive message. We invite everyone and we say, hey, Jesus is okay with your sin. And I said, but the truth of the matter is that, yes, come as you are, but expect change. Expect that Jesus' power is going to change you. Doesn't mean that you have to clean up and be all perfect to come to Jesus. No, He invites you as you are, but He is going to change you. So now today, I want to take that verse 5. The one that we used last week, and we asked the question, how is it possible to have a form of godliness and deny its power? I want to flip that around and ask the question, but surely there is then a true godliness that affirms God's power. We see that all over Scripture. We're encouraged in various passages in different books of the Bible. And we do, of course, get a picture of what the people of God need to look like. And that is what I want to look at today. I want to ask the question, what does powerful faith then look like? If we look at that verse 5, we want a godliness that is then truth. And we want a godliness that is showing God's power. So what does that look like? So today's outline, I want to highlight for us the marks of powerful faith. And I just want to tell you, it's not an exhaustive three marks. It's not like this is the all and be all. But I do believe out of those passages, they are pretty important. The first one that I put up there is that I believe that powerful faith, as we see it in Scripture, should be grounded in truth, and it will be grounded in truth. It should and it will be empowered by love, secondly. And then the fruit of that is that it should be and will be transformational. Let's have a look at the first one. But before we do that, let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you for today. Um, Lord, I thank you for the honor and the privilege to yeah, stand before you as a holy, a perfect, and um, a glorious God. But Lord, thank you that I can approach you with fear and trembling, knowing that you are God. But not just with fear and trembling, but with also boldness knowing that, Lord, you had made a way for us to speak to you and enter into the holiest of holy places um, 
by your grace. And so I do that this morning and I pray, Lord, come and search our hearts. Know our anxious thoughts. Come and see if there are any wicked ways in us and lead us in your ways. Come and show us your way this morning through uh, the scripture and through your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So the first point, the first mark of powerful faith, grounded in truth. Please turn to Jeremiah 7, verses 1 to 5, and I will have that up on the screen as well, but you can turn there in your Bibles. It says there that the word that came to Jeremiah from the, from the Lord, very importantly, emphasis, the word that came to Jeremiah. It's not a thought, it's not an idea that came to Jeremiah, it's not a feeling, but the word. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Now, as we saw last week, I pointed out, it's very clear, God confronts sin and evil in the world and especially in the lives of His children in what way? With truth. With His word. He doesn't beat around the bush. But the question is, how could Israel trust Jeremiah that this was actually the truth of God? You know, how could they know? How should they have known? Well, they were, of course, in those times, as in the time of Jesus and as today, there were tests to verify whether or not someone is a prophet. I'm not going to go into a list of those tests, but if we look at Jeremiah's life, it is clear that he passed those tests. Because what he was preaching, the message that he came, that he brought to Israel, was perfectly in line with God's word. It was in line with the law of the Lord. It was in line with the Torah. He knew the Torah. And it was calling out sin. He was proclaiming a message to the people of Israel that matched God's word. Secondly, concerning prophecies... If you look at Jeremiah's prophecies, he prophesied in 605 BC that Jerusalem would fall and that the temple would be destroyed by an enemy of the north. This prophecy was fulfilled in 586 BC, so it was predicted almost 20 years before the event took place. Pinpoint accuracy. So we have his message matching the word of God, the law of the Lord, and the law of Moses, and we have prophecies that are fulfilled. The question is then still in the end, how on earth did the people of Israel or the people of Judah in this situation, why did they not believe it? I want to demonstrate something to you through an illustration. And I was thinking about this illustration. It's out of a movie. And then I calculated how old this movie is. And I realized, oh my hat, this movie is 27 years old. Uh, hopefully I have more than five people that remember this movie. But in 1992, there was a movie called A Few Good Men, starring Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson. How many of you remember that movie? At least five, come on. Otherwise, the illustration will not work. And thank the Lord, he is faithful. He's provided five faithful remnant <laughs> ones here. Okay, now, 
In that movie, we see Tom Cruise. He is this young, good-looking rookie lawyer uh, who works for the, the U.S. Marine or uh, uh, Navy, and then he is given the task to investigate a murder that took place, a murder of a young soldier, and two other young soldiers are the accused because there, there seems to have been an initiation that took place, a code red. And so we have Jack Nicholson who plays this very intimidating, arrogant, and self, you know, he's just full of himself, this colonel. And he is then, in the climax of the movie, cross-examined by Tom Cruise's character. To the point that Tom Cruise is then, he's, he's laying on the truth. He's, he's, he's pressing his buttons. And you can just see, you know, in Jack Nicholson's face, in his character, he's just got this brilliant face and this smirk, right? Like he's getting all irritated with this young rookie. And then he loses it at one stage. And he shouts at Tom Cruise's character, you want answers? And Tom Cruise is like, yeah, I want answers. I want the truth. And Jack Nicholson's character goes, the truth, you can't handle the truth. Okay, very bad impersonation there of Jack Nicholson. But anyways, um, Tom Cruise then presses on and he says, Colonel, did you order the code red? And then he loses his cool. He's like, you bet I ordered the code red. Okay. And in that moment, the whole court goes, <gasps> did he just say that? Did he just confess that he ordered the code red? In other words, that he is actually the one who is responsible for ordering the initiation of the soldier which led to his murder. And so he is then trialed for the murder of that soldier. And what's the point of that illustration? The irony of that moment in that scene is that when Jack Nicholson's character was praised with the truth for the truth, he is the one that is then, in the end, unable to handle the truth. And Israel, just like Jack Nicholson's character, could not handle the truth with their comfortable, powerless religion. But aren't we the same? That we are, when we are pressed and confronted about our sin, and we're done, and, and that is done without God. If we're confronted with sin in our life, but without God, that we cannot handle it. We freak out. Just like Adam and Eve, when they were in the garden, they could not handle it when they were confronted with the truth. And they went and they hid themselves. And the truth of the matter is that, you know, none of us can really handle the truth without the help of God. Because we don't have the power to handle our sin. We cannot deal with the sin ourselves. We can try and do whatever we want. We can try to cover it up. But it will not take it away. You see, the nation of Israel turned away from the truth of God because the truth was too hard to handle because they weren't in the truth. They were living outside of the truth. They had become so deceived that the truth was not part of their life anymore. And it became too comfortable for them to just go through the motions in powerless religion. But here's the great thing for us, that on this side of the cross, 
We have the truth of God. He came and He lived among us in the flesh. He came and He lived the perfect life. And guess what He did? He handled the truth of our sin for us on the cross of Calvary in order that we might be set free from the penalty of sin and of death. You know, you might sit here and you're a skeptic and you listen to this and you say, well, yeah, Rudy, you, you're talking about Jeremiah as a prophet and how Israel, how could they trust his message? Well, we can ask the same about Jesus. How can we trust that he is the truth? It's a fair question. Well, just like Jeremiah, I want to tell you, Jesus came and he fulfilled the whole law of God. He lived a sinless life. But his life, death, and resurrection, listen to this, was a fulfillment of over 300 Old Testament prophecies. Do you know that the odds of one person coming to fulfill just eight of those prophecies, do you know what the odds of that is? It's like one out of 10 to the power of 17. So one out of 10 times 10, 17 times. Okay? I, I don't know how to do that math. But it's really, really slim. And I'm telling you that so that you can have the faith and the knowledge and that you can know that Jesus is who he says he is. And so if, if we want to have a life that is a powerful faith, if we want to demonstrate faith, we're going to have to start with the truth of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins on the cross for each and every one in the world so that we would not perish but have eternal life in Him and Him only. Listen to this. Jesus said this in John 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in John 8, verse 31 and 32, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How will you know the truth? How will you be able to live a life that is powerful in faith? It will only be to the extent that you know and abide in Jesus and His Word and allow Him to set you free from the bondage of sin and shame. And that is the truth. And so that is the mark for me, the first mark of powerful faith, is whether or not you're grounded in the truth. Second point, powerful faith should be empowered by love. Jeremiah 7, verses 5 to 7. Let's look at that one. It says there, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute, execute justice one with another, and if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. The truth that Jeremiah was bringing to the people of Israel was that God was not happy with them. And so they didn't like that. 
But what was the reason? The reason was this, that they were violating the covenant that God had made with the people of Israel through Moses. What, what was the, the law? What was the covenant about? Mainly two things. Jesus Christ said that the whole law can be summarized as follows. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And secondly, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So in other words, love God and love people. Only two things. The, the, if you can do that, you have fulfilled the whole law. But Israel were caught in idolatry and God called it and made it equivalent to adultery. In other words, he said, you are like a wife or a husband that is prostituting yourself. You're, you're my wife, you're my bride, but you're prostituting yourself to other gods. And the end result of that was that people got hurt. The sojourner was being oppressed, the orphans and the widows were being neglected. Innocent blood was being shed. Now, isn't that so true if we look at covenantal relationships like marriage? If we look at marriages, what is the greatest devastation that happens when marriages fail, when there is divorce and when there is adultery committed? People get hurt. Children family, friends, all of those who are closely connected to those marriages get hurt. So many people's lives are attached to the covenant that was made between those two people when they stood in front of God and they promised to live a life committed fully to one another. Now, I know this because in recent years, in the last two or three years, I've had family members who have had to go through divorce. So I speak out of a place of where I have sympathy and compassion for that. But it should be no surprise to us that in the same way, Israel broke that covenant with God, and when they broke the covenant with God, and not loving God first, with their whole hearts, bodies, soul, minds, and strength, what was the consequence? It had devastating consequences on the people of Israel, and on the social well-being. Because if we do not love God first, we will not love people. If Israel's vertical worship or vertical relationships were intact, if they put God first, the horizontal relationships would have been intact. Question is, who was to blame? Quickly going to take you to 2 Chronicles 36, verses 11 to 16. And I know this is a big portion, but just stick with me here because it gives us a glimpse of why this happened. 2 Chronicles 36, verses 11 to 16. If you go and read 2 Chronicles closer to the end, the last couple of chapters, you will see and get a glimpse of what the state of Israel was like, and specifically Judah, the southern kingdom. They had king after king after king that did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet. Who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. I'm going to jump to verse 13. In the middle of that, it says he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against the turning 
against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers, the priests, and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations. Verse 15, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. God sent messengers after messengers, prophets after prophets, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against the people and there was no remedy. What we see here in these verses is a pattern that had developed after various evil, sinful kings reigned. And what was the consequence of that? The word and the truth of God was not embraced. There was no word and truth of God. Which led them to doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Devastating consequence on the people and the moral fiber of Israel. Now, is it any wonder that if we look at our lives today and we look around us in the world and we see the moral decay that is happening? If we look at the leadership of this country, if we look at the leadership across the world, is it any wonder that we ask, wow, are these the leaders of today? Is it any wonder if we look at communities that we're living in the state that we're living in and I want to submit to you that communities will only be as healthy as families because if you look at our families, our families are broken and families are the heart and pulse of a community and society. I want to ask the question this morning, where are the leaders, where are the fathers who are the leaders of our families? Where are the godly parents? Because the truth of the matter is, where the leaders go, people follow. In Proverbs 29 verse 18, I'm going to put up there the message translation by Eugene Peterson. It says, if people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. Leaders, if people can't see what God is doing in our lives, people will stumble. Parents, if... If your children can't see what God is doing in your life, they will stumble. But when they attend to what He reveals, that is God, they are most blessed. Other translation of that word or of that verse says, where there is no vision or prophetic vision, the people perish or the people cast off restraint. Now, it's all very bleak and bad news, but we have to answer the question, what is the answer? Okay? I'll bring it back to the main point. It's about being empowered by love. The issue for God for, with Israel was there was no love. They were neglecting the sojourners, the orphans, the widows. But in order for us to give God our love and in order for us to live a life where we give love to people, you know what we first need to do before you want to give God your love? You first have to receive you first have to receive. Have a posture of receiving. Open hands. Romans 5 verse 5 says this. The hope that we have in God does not put us to shame because, listen to this, God's love has been poured into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. 
How do we receive him? How do we receive the Holy Spirit? Listen to this. Acts 2 verse 38. Peter preaches the first sermon. The Holy Spirit falls on the people. But he says, listen, because they asked him, what should we do? He says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. As soon as you repent and trust in Jesus... You are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And a sign of that happening, and a sign that you want to show the rest of the world of, of that had happened, is baptism. So the truth of the matter is that we need God's love in order to make our faith powerful if we want to demonstrate God's love. We need to receive it first. Without the Holy Spirit, our deeds are all but dead works. And I pointed out that last week, that Works without faith is dead, but faith without works is also dead. Question is, have you done that? Have you repented of your sins? Have you come to God and come in the posture of, I don't have the answers. I can't handle my sin by myself. I need help. And have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Have you seen the Holy Spirit's life at work in your life? If not, you have the opportunity to do that today. So to summarize the first two points, powerful faith is grounded in truth and the truth of Jesus Christ. Powerful faith should be empowered then by God's love through the Holy Spirit, which leads us to the last point, and should be then the outflow, the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. And this one is being transformed, transformational. Jeremiah 7, verses 8 to 11, it says, that, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before my uh, before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all of these abominations as this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Israel were deceived, as I pointed out last week. They thought that they were delivered. They thought their sins are cleansed by them performing their rituals and that they could just carry on living the way that they were living. What was lacking in their lives was real transformation. Transformation in the fruits, the deeds of their lives. So they were caught in their sins to the extent that they were even sacrificing their children to Canaanite gods, Baal and Moloch. Now, as I pointed out last week, they believed the lie that they could come to God as they were and stay the same. But what we can take from their example is that true and powerful faith is only demonstrated then by a life that is transformed and not modified. They were lacking the transformation. They were just looking for little behavior modifications. Because you see, it's not really that hard to modify certain habits, to change certain habits. All you need to do is go to the bookstore, go into Amazon, and you will see the best-selling books are your self-help books. Buy these steps or the book uh, that's got the 10 best steps, and bam, you're in. 
or go to a Tony Robbins conference and yeah, you're good to go. It's similar to this uh, example in my life. When John and I got married, she was very surprised to learn that I didn't floss. Okay? I'm quite ashamed of that. At that stage, I didn't realize the importance of floss. But anyways, she was surprised and I then started flossing. Okay? I started flossing. It was really hard. It was a habit that I hadn't learned. But I did it every night. I promise you 30, 40 times that you try and cultivate a new habit, it sticks to the extent that now, man, I cannot go to bed if I have not floss. doesn't matter where I am. If, if I'm camping, I need to go floss. Because I've just seen the stuff that gets stuck in between your teeth. And, of course, I knew it was going to be great for my marriage, okay? <laughs> then not going to go too far in that. But what's the point? In the same way, we can try and modify or change our lives ourselves by dropping certain habits or starting to cultivate different habits. And we learn these things and then we think, hey, man, this is transforming my life. But the end question is, does it really transform your life to the extent that your heart is changed? That it is improving your relationship with God? Because the only life that's going to give glory to God is a new life in Christ Jesus. Not one that is modified by the latest and greatest teachings of Tony Robbins or whoever is trying to help you with their self-help books. So the question is, how can you see that life of yours transformed? How can we see our lives transformed? Romans 12 verses 1 to 2 says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Unlike Israel, we need to present our whole bodies, every part of our life, to God as a living sacrifice. Not just... The Sunday morning worship, not just when it feels comfortable to talk about Jesus. Every part of our life. This will enable us to be different and not conform to the patterns of this world, but transformed, having a change of mind, but being changed from the inside out. And then we act in the way that demonstrates a powerful faith and life. I'm pretty sure that you've heard this before. If not, that's great. But the, the word when Paul talks about transformed, the Greek for that, metamorphosis, that's the word that we use and get metamorphosis from, which is the biological process through which an animal physically develops after birth or hatching and then experiences an abrupt change. So, that process of a caterpillar turning into a butterfly, metamorphosis. It's that picture. It's a whole new creation. It's a new creature. But this is what's really interesting. It is the same word that is used to describe Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain with Peter and John. When he is transfigured before their eyes and he is the image of God and they fall down and they cannot look at him because he's so holy. 
In the same way, God wants to transform us in the image and likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says this, Whenever someone turns to the Lord, if you repent, the veil is taken away. Because there is a veil over our eyes if we have not repented and acknowledged our sins. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. Isn't that amazing? 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. A new person. Brand new. I find that amazing. Conclusion. You know, what can we take away from this today? Those three points. Our faith will only be powerful if it is built on the truth of Jesus Christ. That is what I've been telling you from the beginning. I've told you that and I'm going to end with that. Jesus Christ revealed through His Word, by God's Word. Anything else that we try apart from Jesus is just filthy rags in front of God. The question is, have you made that commitment? Second one, our faith will only be as powerful if it is empowered by the love of the Holy Spirit who is given to us as soon as we make that decision to acknowledge we need God's help to handle our sin. Have you been empowered by the Holy Spirit? If not, today is your opportunity to do that. And then lastly, our faith will only be powerful if it has transformed our lives into the image and likeness of Christ in order that I might reflect Him in everything that I do. It's not saying that you're going to be perfect, but it is you're being transformed, you're being sanctified in this process. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced a new birth? Your spirit being born again? Today is the day that you can make that choice to follow Jesus with everything that you have. Finally, I'm going to end off with this. If we look at that verse again, 2 Timothy 3 verses 1 to 5. You know, Paul lists 19, 18 or 19 very evil and sinful characteristics of the end times. Now, I want to emphasize that the end times are not, it's not that we're in the end times now. We have been in the end times since Jesus' birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension. Those were the end days. It started then. It's still carrying on. And the end times will only end, or the last days will only end when Jesus returns. But if our faith in Him is to be powerful until that day when He returns, I'm going to read to you what I believe Paul would say differently in, that, in those verses. What it would say about the people of God. Now listen to this. I don't have it up on the screen, but just listen to this. But understand this. In the last days, there will be times of difficulty. Jesus said it. You will experience tribulation. But in those difficult times, there will be people who are lovers of other people, who are generous, humble, modest, 
kind, obedient to their parents, thankful, holy, compassionate, content, complimentary, self-controlled, civilized, lovers of good, trustworthy, responsible, self-aware, being satisfied in God. And here's the big thing. In verse 5, I think Paul would then say, having true godliness and demonstrating its power, gather with such people. Gather with such people. Make a decision today. First of all, if you have not done that yet, about Jesus, His life, death, and resurrection, to trust in Him, to cleanse you. But then, make a decision to be the people of God and to stick with the people of God. Let us be the church of Jesus Christ. 